If you wouldn't open your Bibles with me, the book of 1 Timothy. As you're turning, let me remind you what's in the bulletin, our service schedule for uh, Christmas Day and New Year's Day. Each of those mornings, we'll have one service only at 1045 a.m. We'll plan to have our New Year's service at uh, New Year's Eve service at 7 p.m. And also, I'll put this in the bulletin again, but also that week we will plan on having our, our regular Wednesday service and then meet again on Saturday night for New Year's. I'm sure that's as, as clear as mud, but like I said, I'll put it in the bulletin again. All right, I've titled our message this morning, Four Faithful Stains. I began earlier this week to write an article on one of these faithful sayings, and uh, the articles kind of started getting pretty lengthy. So I thought, well, I'm just going to preach from these instead. So we'll uh, take a break this morning from looking at the book of Philippians and look at these four faithful sayings. Now there's a, a few phrases that we typically associate with the Apostle Paul. One of those is God forbid. Paul used that, that phrase often. He said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What then? Shall we sin? Because we're not under the law, but under grace. Oh, he said, God forbid. That's a phrase that we associate with the Apostle Paul. And another phrase is, this is a faithful saying. Paul is the only one that used that in the phrase in the New Testament. And he used it four times. Now these are faithful sayings. That tells me it's important that we know them. That we understand them. And that we believe these four faithful sayings. These things are foundational truths that are to be preached. Paul wrote each of these, these phrases, each time he uses this, um, this is a faithful saying, he wrote it to a preacher. Three times to Timothy, one time to Titus. These things, he's telling these young preachers, are to be preached and they're to be believed. And I want us to look at them this morning. And one thing I want us to, to see out of this is how each one of these sayings, these four faithful sayings, teach us our dependence on Christ in four different ways. So the first of these phrases is found in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Now the fact that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners who could not save themselves. That is worthy to be believed by everybody who hears it. Because no matter who hears this, they're a sinner who needs a Savior. Everybody should believe. I know they don't, but they should believe this glorious truth. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now this glorious truth, it's not to be questioned. It's not to be debated. It's to be believed. It's to be believed because it's true. Christ Jesus coming to save sinners, it, that glorifies God. It glorifies God because it makes the salvation of a sinner dependent upon the Lord. So it's worthy to be believed. It glorifies God. Anything glorifies God is worthy to be believed in. But this saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that also meets the need of sinners. I need somebody 
to come do for me what I cannot do for myself. And that's what Christ came to do. He came to save sinners who could not save themselves. Now, why wouldn't a sinner love to hear that? Why wouldn't a sinner love to believe that? I mean, I know the answer to that is because we're born dead in sin. But boy, it's worthy to be believed in. I want to break this verse down just a, a little bit. Paul says Christ came to save sinners. And he came. That means he was somewhere before he got here, wasn't he? He was somewhere before he came to earth as a man. What was he? He was in glory with his father. He's the son of God. That means the Lord Jesus Christ, the man Christ Jesus, who was born to Mary in Bethlehem's manger, is God himself. He's the eternal father. And since he's God, he has the power, he has the righteousness, he has the holiness, and he has the right to save sinners. See, all of our sins against God. So he's the one who has the right to save sinners. The Father has an eternal purpose of grace for his people, to save his elect from their sin. And when Christ came to earth, here's why he was coming, to do what his Father purposed to be done. He came to accomplish his Father's eternal purpose of the redemption of his people. That's what the angel told his foster father, Joseph. You call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sin. Not he might. Not he's going to try. He shall save his people from their sin. See salvation was never meant to be. By our observance of the law. Or observance of the ceremonies. The law and the ceremonies were given to show us. We can't keep them. And how much we need Christ. Salvation has always been in Christ. And he came to save, to save sinners. He didn't come to offer salvation to as many people as might decide to accept him. He didn't come trying to save somebody. He came to save his people to the uttermost. And there's no doubt about it, that's what he did. He came to save sinners. Now, if there's anybody here this morning who's lost and knows it, who knows you don't have faith in Christ. You're not resting in Christ. You don't believe Him. You, if, if you're lost and you know it, and you want to be saved, I'll tell you what to do. Come to Christ begging for mercy. Because He came to save sinners. The gospel is so simple. The Lord made this so simple. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And He got the job done. The only question for you and me is this. Am I a sinner? It's the only question. <clears throat> if I'm a sinner, Christ Jesus came to save me. So this saying is worthy to be believed gladly by sinners. Not just grudging. Like, I have to believe it because it's so, you know. I tell Janet often, I say, you know, I'm just not going to, I'm going to try not to worry so much about things that are not in my control. The sun rises on the side of the house where our bedroom is. Now, I just assume that it didn't. But I can't change the sun comes up in the east. <laughs> I mean, I just can't, I can't. So I just have to grudgingly accept that. That's just the way it's going to be. 
That's not the way this phrase, Christ came to save sinners, is believed by sinners. They receive it gladly, joyfully. And I love the way Paul says this. He says Christ came to save sinners. He didn't say Christ came to save God's elect. Now, that would have been a true statement if he said that, because that's who he came to save, isn't it? He came to save God's elect. That's the only people he came to save. It's the only people for whom he died. But the Holy Spirit didn't move Paul to write it that way. He moved Paul to write, Christ Jesus came to this world to save sinners. See, I may not know if I'm one of God's elect. But Earl, I know I'm a sinner. (laughs) Then that gives me hope. Christ came to save me. And I love this too. Paul also didn't write, Christ came to save those who would believe on him. Now if he had said that, that would have been a true statement. Everybody that Christ came to save, ultimately they're going to believe on him, aren't they? But the Spirit didn't move Paul to write it that way. The Spirit moved Paul to say, Christ came into this world to save sinners. I've learned this from years of failure. I couldn't make myself believe. I couldn't give myself faith in Christ. I couldn't generate that in myself. But I do know I'm a sinner. And that gives me hope. Christ came to save me because he came to save sinners. And notice this too, because this will give some comfort to your heart. I I love how the, the Spirit wrote Paul to write this perfectly. Paul says, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He didn't say of whom I was chief. He said of whom I am. Now this is a man who had maybe the most spectacular revelation of Christ of of anybody. Certainly any any of the uh, apostles. He was alone with the Savior for those three years, three and a half years, however long it was, being taught taught the gospel face to face from the Savior. The things that, that, that Paul saw and the the working of, of, of the Spirit, how He just moved in, in blessing the gospel and establishing these churches and saving God's people. And he, he, he enabled Paul to write the lion's share of the New Testament. I mean, the Lord used this man mightily, and He still says, I am the chief of sinners. And the Holy Spirit moved Paul to write this this way. For our comfort. See if Paul said. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Of whom I was chief. Well that would tell me. Paul had gotten better since the Lord saved him. He'd he'd risen. He'd gotten better. He'd gotten less sinful. And that would fill me with with fear and doubt. Because it's not my experience. That I got any better. After I believed on Christ. Matter of fact. I see myself as worse. Because only the new man can see the sin of the old man. I didn't see the sin before like it was. But once I was born again, God revealed His Son to me and in me. Really, I see myself as worse than before. So this is not my experience. I've gotten any better. Have you? Has that been your experience? Well, then we'd be filled with, with, with doubt and fear if Paul said, I was the chief. See, I'm glad. I'm so thankful that God's people in order to be saved, don't have to grow less sinful. 
in order to keep their salvation. They don't have to grow less sinful. Because if that was the, if that was the case, we'd end up trusting ourselves, wouldn't we? We'd end up trusting our experience rather than trusting Christ alone. So when Paul says, I am the chief of sinners, that gives me hope because, brother, I sure hadn't seen myself getting any better. Now let me say this on, on this topic. A believer should grow in grace. We should grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord. Our conduct should be changed. Now, it won't be perfect now, but our conduct should be changed if we know and believe Christ. If Christ dwells in our heart, there's a new sheriff in town. There should be some changed conduct. But don't look to your conduct as an evidence of salvation. The only evidence of salvation any of us will ever have is looking to Christ. He's the Savior of sinners. The very best state a believer can ever get to in this life is being the chief of sinners. Now, a sinner saved by grace, but still a sinner who's got a past, who's got a present, and who's got a future. And you know what it's full of, all three of them? Full of sin. Full of sin. And that leaves me depending on Christ alone to save me because he came into this world to save sinners. And I like it that way. I like that my salvation from its beginning to its ending is completely dependent on Christ the Savior and not dependent on me in any way. And the way Paul says this also lets us see how Christ Jesus saved sinners. He says Christ Jesus came. Christ. That's the title of the Messiah. This is the Son of God. He's holy, pure. He's eternal. He's omnipotent. He's God. But his name is also Jesus. That's the human name for this man. The human name of our Savior. Jesus Christ was born a real man. Born to a mother who was a virgin. Born in Bethlehem in a cow barn. And it's important that we note this. this you know, At this time of, of season, I guess it's a good time to remind everybody of this. It's important that Christ was born of a virgin. If he's born of a virgin, not of man's seed, not of Adam's seed, then he wasn't in Adam when Adam sinned. And he didn't take part in Adam's transgression. The seed of woman is a righteous man. Not, not born of Adam's sinful seed. So Christ Jesus, he's both God and man. Christ, he's God. Jesus, he's a man. And the God-man, that's the one who can save sinners. The God-man. He has to be God. So he has the righteousness, the power, the holiness, the right to save. But he has to be a man so he can be our representative. And Jesus Christ came in the flesh so that he could be the substitute for sinful men and women like you and me. And take our sin and put it away by the sacrifice of himself. Now this faithful saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm chief. That leaves us totally dependent on Christ to save us, doesn't it? This just stands to reason. If the Father sent His Son into this world to save sinners, the Father's not wasting His time. He's not spinning His wheels. He sent His Son into this world to save sinners because sinners cannot save themselves. 
We need Christ to come and do all the saving for me. And I like being dependent on the Savior that way. See, depending on Christ, that makes salvation sure. I got reason to worry if salvation is dependent on even one thing that I do. But I don't have any reason to worry if Christ saved me. And that's what he came to do, to save sinners. And I'm telling you, this saying ought to be believed by everybody that hears it. I can't think of a better reason for me or for you to trust Christ, to trust our souls to him than this statement. He came to save sinners. So like I said a minute ago, the only question is this. The question is not, is Christ able? The question is this. Are you a sinner? If God's made you a sinner, Christ came to save you. All right, now look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Here's the second faithful saying. 1 Timothy 4 verse 8. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Now, Paul's talking about bodily exercise here. He's not talking, you know, he was, he was writing in, in the age of, uh, you know, the, the ancient Olympics and people were just so given over to this physical, you know, strength and beauty and things. But he's not, he's not saying anything against bodily exercise, you know, aerobic exercise or running or weightlifting or anything like that. That kind of, of exercise, bodily motion, it has some merit, doesn't it? I mean, it does help your body for a while. That word little there means for a while, just for a little while. I read one time that um, the positive effects of a good, hard, physical workout, they only last for 72 hours. That's just a little while. It doesn't last for very long. Physical exercise, especially consistent physical exercise, well, that helps the body, doesn't it? It does help the body. But only for a little while. Only for a little while. I mean, if you can, if you can push this body to, to, to be healthy and strong past 70 years, well, it's going to fade quick after that. I mean, it's just, it's just the way these bodies... So don't put too much stock in the flesh and, and thinking that, well, if I exercise right and I eat right, and you know, that I can make this body live longer. And it might make you feel better while you're here. But it won't last for just a little while. And then this flesh is going to die. Now that's good advice, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. What Paul's talking about here is the physical, outward motions of religion. Now there's no profit to your soul in that. Oh, it might benefit you in your dead mind mentally for a little while. Oh, I feel so righteous. I went to the service. I went you know, to all these things, you know, it's a... Well, it just lasts a little while, doesn't it? But it's no, no profit to your soul eternally. You know, what you wear or what you don't wear, where you go, where you don't go, what you do, what you don't do, what you eat or drink, what you don't eat or drink, (laughs) it's of no profit to your soul. You can have religion that's full of ceremonies and smoke and candles and costumes and, and singing and all that kind of thing. The kind of music, not like what we have here. 
the kind of music they used to whip people up into, into some sort of emotion. Well, I mean, maybe you think that emotion, you know, benefits you for a little while. Boy, as soon as you leave it, it's gone, isn't it? That emotion's gone. It's of no um, eternal value to your soul. All those things that we could do with this body, either do or don't do, those things can't make us righteous. They can't take our sin away. Only Christ can do that for us. Now this is a faithful saying. It's worthy to be believed by everybody. Don't exercise yourself. Don't waste your time exercising yourself in the motions of outward religion. Instead, exercise yourself unto godliness. And that word godliness, it doesn't mean be like God. I mean, that's kind of like the thing that we think of, imitate God. It means reverence toward God. It means respect toward God. Godliness. Here's how you can exercise yourself in godliness. Put God in his high and lofty place on the throne, just as high as you can lift him, and put yourself in the lowest possible place you can manage to put yourself. That's godliness. Putting God and man in his place. Reverence toward God. You know the best way that you can that you can be reverent, reverent toward God, is believing. Believe his gospel and trust his son. That's reverence toward God. It's not in the religious traditions of men, is it? It's believing God. Reverence toward God is agreeing with God. Now, it's just not very reverent to argue with God, is it? God says, I'm, I'm lost in sin, that I'm just I'm dead in trespasses and sins. I think, well, now, wait a minute. I can do this, or I could do this, or you know, I'm better than this fellow over here. No, we're both dead in trespasses and sins. We're both dead maggots. Reverence toward God is agreeing with God. Say, Lord, you're right. I'm guilty. I'm lost. What I deserve is for you to send me to hell. But I'm begging you for mercy. I'm asking you to forgive my sin for Christ's sake because that's what you told me to do. Reverence toward God is agreeing with God. Reverence toward God is not trying to earn a righteousness by all this bodily motions that we can do. Trying to earn a righteousness. Reverence toward God is saying the only righteousness that I have the only way I can be righteous and the only righteousness I want is the righteousness of Christ. See, godliness, agreeing with God and believing God, that's profitable to your soul, isn't it? It'll never wear off. It gives you eternal life. Godliness, agreeing with God and seeking Christ to be my righteousness and being content to have only Christ as my righteousness. To have only Christ as my only plea. My only hope. Oh, that's great gain. Because if you trust Christ alone, you have eternal life. That's profitable, isn't it? But you know, believing Christ is good and profitable for me in this life too. Right now. What a blessing it is to know right now even while I'm in this body of sinful flesh, that all God requires of me is His Son. Everything God requires me to do, Christ already did for me as my representative. Now that will comfort me 
in every situation. Sunny days and dark days. So exercise yourself in godliness. Put some effort into this thing. Put some effort into seeking Christ. Put some, put some effort into this thing. Just like you put effort into your job. You, you put effort into how you dress and, and how you look. I mean, y'all got this morning before you came here, you brushed your teeth, you washed your hair, you looked, you know, looked in the mirror to make sure your clothes, you know, look. Like, you know, I guess that's good. I'd rather, you know, be, have my hair combed out in public than not, I reckon. Put some effort in that thing. But put some effort into this too. Put some effort into not trusting your works. You know, your flesh is going to constantly be whispering in your ear, constantly bringing up, oh, if you do this, you'll be better than so-and-so. If you do this, you'll be more likely God will accept you. Put some effort into throwing that away. Put some effort into not trusting your works and trusting Christ alone. That's exactly what the writer to the Hebrews meant. Hebrews 4 verse 10. He said, labor into entering into his rest. Put some effort into resting in Christ, not in yourself. Put some effort into it. Now salvation, by God's grace, is in Christ Jesus without any of our works. That is a truth everybody should believe. We don't have any religious works that can make us acceptable with God. All of our religious works, the best things we do, you know what God calls them? Filthy rags. Now they won't get the job done. But their salvation and comfort for our souls in relying on Christ. And every believer should believe that gladly, shouldn't they? It's a faithful saying. All right, now look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy 2, verse 11. It is a faithful saying, For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he, will, he also will deny us. i tell you what Paul's talking about here. It's the gospel of representation. And this is the way God saves sinners. Is by a representative. You know, when Paul talks about suffering here, he's not talking about our suffering. He's talking about the vicarious, substitutionary suffering of Christ for his people. He's talking about Christ's suffering as the representative of his people. He's talking about Christ's suffering, what it took for Christ to suffer as our substitute, to save his people from their sin. Now, this is a, it's a faithful saying. It's worthy to be believed by everyone. Salvation is accomplished through a representative man. Just like we were made sinners by representation in Adam. We weren't made sinners the first time we told a lie. Or the first time we did something wrong. First time, like Brother Henry, you say we stole a watermelon. That, that's not the first time I became a sinner. I became a sinner a whole lot longer ago than that. I became a sinner in a representative man in Adam because I was there. I was, you know, people say, if I was in the garden, I wouldn't have done it. Oh, yeah, you would have too because you were there. I was in Adam. When Adam sinned, so did I. When Adam disobeyed God, so did I. That's how I was made a sinner. 
Now God's people are made righteous by the act of another representative man. The Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Now this is a faithful saying. We should all believe it. We should all love it. Our hearts should be thrilled by this. The way I'm made righteous is Christ obeyed the law for me. And when he obeyed the law, I did too because I was in him as my representative. See, I'm not made righteous. People take this and say, well, no, you, you know, you've got to be so vocal about, about your religion that you suffer in this world because you claim to believe Christ. And you know, people are so mean to you because you hate to believe Christ. And that's how you've got to suffer. You know, if you suffer like that in this world, that's the evidence of your salvation. No, the evidence of your salvation, the only evidence there is of it, is faith in Christ. Do you believe Christ? Do you, it's not how you make other people treat you. Other people might be mean to you because you're a horse's hind end. Maybe that's why they're mean to you. I mean, you know, you can't put any stock in that. The only evidence that we have is this, faith. Do I believe Christ? The suffering that Paul's talking about here is suffering in Christ our representative. When he suffered and died for sin, I did too. Because I was in him. When Christ died, so did I. When he died to all the demands of God's justice and all the demands of the law, so did I. Because I was in him. Isn't that the very simple way that God's given us to confess faith in His Son, to confess salvation in His Son, believer's baptism. It all shows my only hope of salvation is being in Christ. When He died, I died in Him. When He was raised from the dead, I was raised in Him. That's He's my life. Now here's the blessing for God's people. If I died in Christ, He's my representative. When He died, I died in Him then God's justice demands I have eternal life. Because a just God can't punish the same person for the same sin twice. It's already been punished in Christ our representative. Then God's justice demands I have eternal life. If I died, to, to Christ, I died in Christ my representative, then I'm dead to the law's commands. I'm dead to the law and the law is dead to me. The law can't hold anything over my head anymore. The law can't threaten me anymore. I'm dead to it. The law can't demand that I die a second time for the same sin. I already died in Christ, so I'm free from the law. I don't even have to look to the law to see how to conduct myself. I'm free from it. Don't entangle yourself with the law trying to see how to live. You already know how to live. God put that in you. You already know not to lie, not to cheat, not to... You already know those things. You already know to tell the truth. You already know to, to be kind to people. You already... Look to Christ. Follow Christ. Oh, I'm, the law can't require one more thing for me to do because Christ did it all. And I'm free from the condemnation of the law. It's impossible for the law to condemn me again because I already died in Christ. The law cannot require any more of me than what Christ has already done. Now that gives us freedom. See, salvation is not earned by our religious works. It's received through faith in Christ. And since salvation is received by faith, do you know that leaves us completely dependent on Christ too, doesn't it? He's got to give us faith. Look at verse 13. 
If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. Now salvation is received by faith in Christ. Is anybody here satisfied with your faith? Is it, uh, is it strong enough? Is, is it consistent enough? Are you always faithful? Have you always believed? I hope not. I hope not. Oh, what about all those years? Now, if I'm one of God's elect, but you know, all those years, I just refuse to believe. Refuse to believe the gospel. What about that? Does that leave us all in trouble? We can't produce faith, and we sure can't maintain perfect faith in How then can a sinner be saved? How then can a sinner keep his salvation? Sinners are saved because God's faithful. We're saved by the faith of Christ. By the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ to do everything that God required for us. And we're kept saved by the faithfulness of God who will not let his people go. He's going to keep his promise. He's going to keep his covenant. Paul says here, God cannot deny himself. He can't deny his covenant of grace. He cannot deny his son's sacrifice. He cannot deny his son's righteousness. He cannot deny the the salvation that Christ wrought for his people. He can't deny himself. Then all of God's sinful people will be saved. And they'll be kept saved. Now having our salvation dependent on God's faithfulness. Not on my faithfulness. That leaves us completely dependent on God. But I sure do like it that way. I'd a whole lot rather be dependent on God's faithfulness than mine. When you dependent on God's faithfulness makes salvation sure. All right, here's the last thing. Titus chapter 3. Titus 3, verse 8. This is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they have which believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Now if you want to see where this faithful saying actually begins, you have to look up at verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we've done, But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which is shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying. The scripture can't be more clear about this. Salvation is not by our works. Salvation is by God's grace. So if we're going to be saved, we're going to have to be completely passive in this thing of salvation. Now let me explain what I mean by that. We're going to have to be completely passive. I didn't say there's not anything you can do. Jonathan read there in Psalm 34, you can pursue. You can pursue God. You can seek God. You can pray. You can ask God to save you. You can ask God to forgive you. You can ask God to give you your life. You can stay at his feet and refuse to leave. Just make yourself a nuisance like that woman knocking at the door to the unjust judge. You can just 
Keep begging for mercy. You can do that. We should seek God. We should beg God for, for mercy. But in salvation, we're going to be completely passive. And what I mean by that is this. There's not one thing we can do to contribute to our salvation. There's not one thing that we can do to get God to save us. You know, if, if you beg God for mercy, you beg Him for forgiveness, and He forgives you, and He saves your soul. He didn't, he didn't forgive you because you asked. <laughs> he forgave you because He's gracious. He forgave you because it was His eternal will to save you, and He put it in your heart to ask for forgiveness. I mean, you know, this, this is all of God's grace. Paul says, according to His mercy, He saved us. His mercy, not our merit, His mercy. Oh, I can't stress that strongly enough. Salvation is by mercy, not because we do something to deserve it. Now that's a faithful saying. Salvation is by grace, not works. Our works don't contribute one speck of a tiny iota to our righteousness or our salvation. But this is also a faithful saying. That they who which believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Salvation is not by works. But brother, a person who's been born again is going to work. Now, we're not working to earn a righteousness. We're not working to make God happy with us. We're not working to, so God will bless me more than somebody else. We don't work so other people say, oh, look what a fine, righteous Christian he is, you know. No, a believer works by faith. A believer works in love for Christ. God's people work. Because God-given, life-giving faith always acts. Faith is living, so it must act. Now, good works, these are not works. Don't be, be careful not to maintain these kind of works. A good work is not a work that we'll do so, so that God will say, oh, look how good you are. Now, I only want God to see my goodness as Christ, don't you? Not, not by something I do. Our righteousness is only in Christ. Good works. This is the scriptural definition of good works. We are to be careful to maintain these. Good works are works that we do to help others. To help other believers. To help the body of Christ out of motive of love. Not, not for recognition. Not for reward. But out of a motive of love. You know, somebody can say, well, isn't it so nice? Somebody... You know, did this. Somebody gave gave this. Somebody went over somebody's house and did this. Isn't that so good? Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Did they do it so you'd say that? <laughs> if they did, it's not a good work. Here's how faith works. First of all, by believing Christ. Faith works in resting in Christ. And faith works by doing what I can do to help take care of others. By serving God's people. That's a good work. And that, Paul says, is good and profitable to men. I wrote, I think it's in this week's, yeah, I wrote an article about how to be happy. You want to be happy? Serve God's people. Sacrificially, do what you can do to help God's people. That's good and profitable to you. And it's good and profitable to somebody you help to it. Now, Paul tells Titus, you constantly affirm this. You constantly preach this. You constantly remind God's people of this truth. 
that salvation is by grace, not our works, and we're to be careful to maintain good works, to help one another. And you know the only way that we could ever maintain these good works, be careful to maintain these good works, to help others, to not think of myself first, but to help others. The only way I can maintain good works is by consistently hearing the preaching of salvation by God's grace without works. It's the only way I'll be careful to maintain good works. Because think about it. Some preacher is trying to get you to do good works. He's telling you now, if you're going, you, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. Well, I may do it, but I'll do it out of the wrong motive. He said, I got to. That's a legalistic motive, isn't it? This is a self-righteous attitude, trying to get something for myself. That's the wrong attitude. That's not a good work. But if God's preacher constantly preaches God's free and sovereign grace in Christ Jesus, that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, and brother, he did it. I tell you, the hearts of God's people will be softened, and their heart will be motivated to serve and help one another. Not for reward, but out of love. And out of thanksgiving. Now that's a faithful saying. I'm telling you we should all believe it. I pray God will give us the grace to act on it too. All right, let's bow together. Our Father, how we thank you that you have made salvation so simple to understand. These four faithful sayings. Father, your, your words are simple. Salvation in Christ is Christ alone is so simple, but our nature can't understand it. Our nature can't believe it. Father, I pray you'd give each one of us here this morning a heart that would believe and rest in Christ our Savior, that would love these four faithful sayings of salvation in Christ and Christ alone. Cause us to rest, to believe in, to hope in Christ and Christ alone. It's in his name we pray, and for his glory we pray. Amen. All right, Sean.